Hello and welcome to another episode of Art Blog Radio. I am your host for today, Whit Lopez. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing someone that is near and dear to the heart of Philadelphia, as are many performers that we see daily who comprise the very fabric of what Philadelphia is. You know, what makes Philadelphia Philadelphia. Today's guest is a Philly native, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be speaking with Matthew Hopkins. Um, so, Mr. Hopkins, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited to have you, uh, especially because I met you on the bus. So right, that, was, right. that was a very but Philadelphia you've seen moment. Me a of times oh, that. I have seen you a number of times before yes. that. Mm-hmm. And when I've seen you, you've been billed as the ancient dancer. That's one you've of my also times. been billed as a hip hop granddad. Oh, I yeah. yeah. I think I, it's, it's great-granddad. Oh, yeah. great-grand? <laughs> well, congratulations. Great-grandpa, you know? And, uh, Hip-hop great-grandpop. I and, love and it. And then as OG Mr. Matt, is, is what the, is, that's what I'm called among the uh, among the, the hip-hop people in Philly. They know me as OG Mr. Matt. <laughs> I love that. Yes, OG. I've also seen you build as the world's oldest hip-hop dancer, and I think that's what I saw the first yes, time. Yes, and so far I have not had anyone contest that or you know i understand there's someone in japan and there's various people but they're they're you they're youngsters they're in their early 60s or something like that but so I, if, if there is such a person, asking how old are you i'm 73 and a half so. yes good for you that is wonderful but that's only enough i say i'm 73 years young because life has taught me that age is only a number you know and old is a state of mind and I certainly I don't think old. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. You certainly don't do anything old. You're you're really out there doing your thing, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I think the first time I saw you, I stood there. I think you might have been outside of near Hard Rock Cafe, I believe, yes, you were performing. Yes, I, I, I did. I used to do it sort of in front of the Reading Terminal Headhouse. Yes, yes, yes. Right mm-hmm. right over there was where I saw you the first yeah. time, and I was like, this is amazing. That's been a couple of years ago <laughs> that, I, that I was doing uh, I often tell people I'm 73, but I'm still kicking. Literally. You sure are. You sure? Yes, literally. Toes above the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Toes above the nose. I got to use that. Toes above the nose. <laughs> so what got you into dancing? When did you first start dancing? Well, actually, my first memory of dancing, I think I was four or five. In South Philly, my mother and my aunts went to a kind of like what you would call today a house party. A family mm-hmm. that lived just a half a block from us were having a, a party. And uh, my mother said, well, we're going to take, my nickname was Little Mac or Mackie. That was what they <laughs> called me as a kid. They said, we're going to take Mackie to this party. And I remember hearing music. And I remember I had never had a happier moment in my life to that point than being there dancing, and suddenly people were looking at me and saying, oh, look at that he's dancing, and I was four. <laughs> and I, it was just a, it was uh, a moment of, of pure joy and self-discovery. Mm. And I've continued to feed off that moment because it's like it was yesterday. That's and, I, and I still obtain the same unqualified joy. There's nothing I do in my life that gives me greater pleasure or happiness than dancing. Particularly mm. dancing when other people are observing me. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I love it. I love it. And I love that story. I feel like that's such a very Philadelphia thing. 
Um, like I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my family, like at family functions, they don't dance. My father's side of the family does, but my mom's side doesn't. Mm. And so a lot of family functions, there wasn't. It wasn't until I came to Philadelphia that I went to, you know, someone's birthday party or someone's Christmas party, and they would turn the radio up, and you know, they get going, right, and get going. Yeah, everybody's doing the bop. Well, both my <laughs> mother it. and my father both danced. My father was a Marine at Pearl Harbor when I was born. Wow. And he used to do a dance they called the uh, sand, where they would sprinkle sand on on the ground and they would shuffle their feet mm. and, and rhythmically <laughs> make sounds. That's what my, I remember I watching that. my father. My mother. My mother taught me to do the bop. I don't know if you've I heard of that. I, I, yep, I yeah. love the bop. The I bop. love it. It's my one of my favorite things. My mother was one things. of my dance partners. She taught me the bop. I remember my, my brother loved the cha-cha and line. Mm. There was a form of line dancing before what line dancing is now, where the men would all line up, and they would dance back and forth doing what they called cha-cha steps. Mm. And they had these were intricate, and they were foot movements. Not much body movement, not much hip or any of that. Everything was in the foot. Kind of it's sort of similar to, to uh, the Irish jig, where everything mm. is in the feet and leaping, but the hands are, are, are dead. They just kind of hang. Yeah. So, so I, I got to see the, these varieties of, of dance as a very young person. There was That's a trophy in, my, in the house I grew up in, my grandmother and grandfather's house, where they had won a dance called the Black Bottom, which I believe mm. might have been in the 20s or somewhere wow. in that period. And they, my, my uh, grandmother and my grandfather had won this trophy dancing and, and it was still sitting around a little dusty sometimes my job would be to dust it, dust it <laughs> off so so there was uh this this dance thing was in my in my uh, family but I, i've not consistently been a dancer all of my life my father did not want me to be a dancer as much as i love dance my mother studied dance she would take me to the studio oh, I, I can't remember the exact name of it but I, it's the same place that, believe it or not, Judith Jamison studied. You know oh, that. Wow! Name. Yes. Absolutely. So as a kid um, in Philly, my mother would go study dance, and there was a woman named Io Nash who's still alive and who's like ninety. What is she? Ninety four, ninety five. Is still mm, still dancing. Amazing. She danced at Odunde for many years. She would get up on stage. Io Nash was a, a legend, and um, so. I would I would go with my mother for her lessons, and I've always been a, a fidgety person. I still am. I, I don't know that I, I am too. I have a lot of energy, <laughs> and I'd be sitting there while my mother was having her lessons and whatnot, and I'm moving in, and I said, "Bring that boy up here," and she said she put me in the line, and I was couldn't have been happier. I think I might have been the only male in the room, and I was doing the moves and dancing with with all all, all of these other women. You know, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful way to learn. That's amazing. But as I said. My father did not want me to pursue dancing. He mm. wanted me to pursue music. My father could play anything on the piano by ear from mm. hearing it, but he could not read a note of music. That's and he was determined. It's a, it's a gift. Absolutely. It's a gift. Absolutely. He was determined that his children would learn to read music. So very on in, in, in my life, probably around the age of six, my father purchased a, a little piano. They called it a spinet. I don't know if they still have those around mm -hmm. anymore. It's a little small piano that could fit in this room, and you still have a lot of room to move around. <laughs> and he, he would sit and play it, and he required me to take music lessons. And mm -hmm. I studied the piano from a woman, a marvelous woman named Vivian Pitts in South Philadelphia. Her studio and her home was at... Uh, 19th and Wharton in South Philadelphia. Okay. And she was an accomplished musician. She was an organist. 
a wow. violinist, wow. a violist, and also uh, a pianist. She taught That's all amazing. of those instruments. And wow. Her niece was was a famous jazz musician in Philly, Trudy Pitts, who passed away a few years ago. Mm. Anybody in the jazz world that's been around for a while would know that name, Trudy Pitts. But this woman gave me my foundation and something that I, I was very much in love with music. And I I remember my first piano recital. I played the music of Cicely Chaminade, and I, I took it very seriously. My first recital and concert, and it's just something that I love. So mm. my, my love and passion for music what kind of supplanted but but did not eliminate my love for dance mm. and the two kind of had a symbiotic relationship throughout my life where the two things weave together absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. that's amazing that that's really amazing do you still play piano i don't i don't play uh piano piano was the first i and probably around as I was approaching my teens, I became very interested in orchestral music. Mm. My father would bring home, my father worked at the Franklin Arsenal in Philadelphia, but he also did side work on the weekends for various people, for doctors, doing things, odd jobs around their house. And one of these doctors was disabusing himself of his collection of 70, what do they call them? They were called 78 RPM. That's before your time. These were uh, about the same size as a 33 and a third. You, mm. you, you remember those, or you've seen them. Yes. <laughs> but the thing about those, they were so friable that if you dropped them, they would shatter like a mm. dish. Wow. So they were precious. And each one could play no more than, I think, maybe not quite three minutes of music. Oh, wow. So, uh, you, so music releases were tailored to fit within that space uh, wow. of time. But in the classical music, you would have a big, heavy album with maybe 10 to 8 different of these just to hear one Beethoven symphony, you know. Mm -hmm. And and my father, the doctor, was getting rid of those. This is just at the beginning of 33rd, uh, 33 and a third LPs. So he gave it to my father. My father brought him to, I got to listen to Beethoven, Prokofiev. All of the, all of this, and I fell in love with that music. Mm. So I, I became a lover of, of orchestral and symphonic music, and I, I took to studying percussion. Mm. And I, wow. I, be, I went to the Settlement Music School. You may have heard of itself. I've taken class the Settlement too. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the days when it was uh, run by a man named Sal Schombach, and there I, I studied percussion with a man named Alan Abel, who played in the Philadelphia Orchestra for many, many years. Amazing. And I got to have an opportunity that is absolutely unique. In those days, there were two unions. There was, the, um, there was a white union, and there was a union for, for black musicians. And mm. never the twain would meet. They had their own areas. That most of the black musicians, they governed jazz and... and pop and that sort of thing. But if you wanted to play classical music or play with the Philadelphia Orchestra, you had to be a member of the the uh, the uh, white union, which seemed to be controlled by uh, uh, a number of people, most of whom were Italians, that, that it had some connection, I'm told, now I can't document any of this, with, with uh, some mob interests, you know. And the people at the Settlement Music School, Alan Abel and Sal Schombach decided it was time for that to change. And they, I was the sacrificial lamb in that I was the first uh, 
African American. Back then, we they I think we were Negroes by then. We had stopped mm. being colored, and we were Negroes. I was the first to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra as an extra in the percussion section, and wow. and we did the Car Carmina Barana. Do you know you know oh, that word? I love Carmina I got to perform Barana. that oh under goodness. under the man who conducted the Philadelphia. His name is Eugene Ormandy. Amazing. He was a, a renowned Amazing. conductor that conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra for many years. Uh, I didn't get hired, but I did get to play do that. And the next year, he hired two musicians, Renard Edwards and Booker Rowe, violin and uh, viola and violin, respectively. And they're still playing with the orchestra. They, they're my age, and they're still sitting wow. in there playing playing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. That's fantastic. But uh, but that was a, it was a great privilege to do that. And I, I was. Innocent as the driven snow, I had no idea that I had been designated to be the sacrificial lamb <laughs> to break down this barrier. Yeah, you know? At yeah, the time, all I know is the idea of being on stage with all of these these musicians that I just worshipped. I would go, Sal Schumbach would give us tickets mm. to go to, and we, back in those days, the Biddles, the Drexels, and all those people, they didn't particularly like anything, any music that was written in the 20th century. They wanted to hear Mozart, Beethoven, and... And that's all, that's what, so if it, if it was Ravel or Prokofiev or any of these people, they would give their tickets to the school and uh, oh, wow. and Sal Schombach would give it to us. So my brother and I, sometimes we'd be sitting on the very front row like this, looking up at these <laughs> world-renowned conductors Amazing. like uh, uh, Von Karajan and all these, these great conductors. And I, I just love the music. I would go to the Philadelphia Free Library and borrow the scores and learn all this orchestral music. And I, I, I had another fantasy, which is to be a symphony orchestra conductor one day. That's wonderful. And I haven't given that one up one day because I, I think that uh, my knowledge of music and, and the show I could put on, on conducting or whatnot could, could bring, could, would fill up an audience. I look at Bobby McFerrin. I McFerrin's. would love to see you doing that. I, I, I hope that somehow yeah. I can yeah. help you get I there. look at Bobby McFerrin, you know, who was a uh, uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Yep. <laughs> and who one of the faltering, was it the, uh, was it the Minnesota Orchestra? Or, I believe that was faltering. They weren't, people weren't coming and they made the bold decision to hire him. And he was just a naturally gifted musician. His Mozart is as good as anybody on the planet, you know. And he came in, just his personality, his energy filled the concert hall. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you see, the, these symphony orchestras were dying, you know, that they just weren't getting audiences. Now, yeah. now they do Star Wars out there, you know, yeah, and they yeah. actually and the they Beatles, actually play yeah. the music and they, they do all of this yeah. thing. And they've had yeah. to do those things just to survive. Mm. And I'm I'm a great lover of that musical tradition, and I'm happy that they're finding a way to keep it going. So that that's another Absolutely. another uh, that's another one of my loves. So but now now there was a symbiosis in my life between dance and um, and music. And that was, there was a wonderful choreographer who taught at the Subtle Music. Her name was uh, Joan, Joan Kerr. She's passed away now. Maybe she, she may have died in the 90s, early 90s or something. But she taught there, and she had her own dance troupe, mm -hmm. uh, a very talented choreographer. And she and I became friends, and she wanted me to, I, I also was a composer. So I composed music for the dance having a feeling and understanding of dance. And I was able, and in her case, 
the dance was set, and I had to put the music. It's most often the other way around, you know. Yeah, the music yeah. is composed. Tchaikovsky composes music. He <laughs> takes it to the ballet and the impresario, exactly. and then they choreograph it. Absolutely. I had to do just the opposite. She had the dance moves, which were all trying to illustrate a, a dance technique by a man named Lester Horton, who was a West Coast man in the 50s, who's a, a very back-breaking technique of, for dancers in terms of the stretch and the strength mm. that they had to have. And that was, she was an advocate of that. You wow. know? And this was running concurrent with Martha Graham and all these other, Merce Cunningham, all these other great choreographers in New York, uh, um, Alvin Ailey, you know, whom I met, and uh, Arthur Mitchell, Dancy Harlem, whom I met. And these, these people are, are all deceased now but they so I, I got to connect with dance and at that level with these very gifted and talented choreographers and as a musician then I reached one of the great crises of my life and I've had a few uh, where suddenly for reasons that I couldn't determine and whatever medical personnel I could no longer perform music mm. and that was that was one of those moments in life where you say the thing that I love most has been taken from me. Mm. Can I go on? Well, I'm still here, so I had to figure my way out of that one. You but sure that was are. that was a, a dark point. I think I must have been in my 30s when that happened, late, oh, wow. maybe mid to late 30s. Wow. And it was a, a, a great point of depression, some of the darkest moments of my life. And um, but I survived it. And I'm still here. And my love of music never waned for a second, if it's anything. My playlist is probably as eclectic as any you would see. It's absolutely <laughs> Catholic with a small C. And the rhyme wasn't intended. That just happened. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, this just the, the love. How, how can a person uh, sit and enjoy Drake and... and uh, uh, all, all of the, the hip-hop artists through, through the years. And at the same time, I'm just as comfortable listening to WRTI classical and jazz. I, I, I was surrounded by jazz musicians, too. That's another thing. Mm -hmm. My uncle Thomas Hopkins played the saxophone. He was a hero in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. He, he was a wonderful man. He was a bit taller than me, about. And I, I always have to give him credit because he would take me when I was a young kid to march with the mummers. Now in those days, there were the mum, blacks were not allowed to be mummers, but they were allowed to march with a band to march the clowns up the street. Mm. So what we would do, in those days, the, the mummers parade, you may have heard about this, it would start like 6 a.m. in the morning and go to 11 o'clock at night. Wow. This was, I mean, we're talking in the previous century. The mummers was, it was just, a, 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 it, was, it went on all day. And eventually it just became too expensive to police. And it's what it is now. But that was what the number, and I was a South, I grew up in South Philly. So my uncle would say, he, I would get my drum. I was a, a drummer with the, uh, we would march in a marching band. And we would, we would get down there like 5.30 in the morning at Broad and Snyder, wherever it started. We would march one group of clowns up, get on the Broad Street subway, go back, march another group up. <laughs> Sometimes we would do this five times. Oh my God. And I remember going home. <laughs> And putting, showing my my grandmother the money I had made, and she, she panicked. She said, "Boy, what did you do? What did people? What, what did them Hopkinses have you doing? That you how, that you made more money in one day than I make all month washing these people's clothes." And, and um, 
And, uh, you know, I had no clue. I just said, well, you know, this is what, this is what Uncle, Uncle Tom gave me. You know, I told her what I did. And she said, oh, I don't know about that. But she, <laughs> said, but she said, well, I'm happy for you. She grabbed some of the money and I'll take care of this for you, you know. So that was experience and, and one, of, one of the rich experiences that, that I had in Philly as, as a musician playing the drum. Now, I went to, I went to elementary school and they called it junior high then, middle school in, in South Philadelphia. Mm. But I went to high school at Central High, which, mm. was, uh, which was an academic school. And, and that's up in Almond, right? Yes, it's up yeah. there right near Broad and Almond, in, yeah. in that area, a few blocks at uh, Broad and, uh, at Almond and Ogons. And that was a, a turning point because I had a spectacular education there, and it, it connected me and set me up for, for, the, for the rest of my life. You know, it's interesting. When I, le I went from, from Central High to Temple, and the first year at Temple, I was on the dean's list. And I said, I didn't work nearly as hard in my first year of college as I had, had to work <laughs> in my senior and junior year, year at Central. So in those days, Central used to give a degree. I don't know if they still do that. I don't know if it was worth the, the paper was written on, but it meant a whole lot because this was an old tradition that you, you're, you at your baccalaureate celebration, you get an actual degree. And... Mm. But uh, so that was so the music education there and the general education there. And then it was a school, a very diverse school. My first opportunity to have any experience with with really a, a diverse environment was there in the settlement music school. Otherwise, at and everything around me, we were, I was surrounded by people who looked like me, who thought, you know, that that was South Philly. Even though I lived on a block where where there were Italian people, the house I lived in, my father's, the first house he had, had a winemaking uh, apparatus in the basement where the oh, people wow. who lived there before used to would, would stamp on the grapes and, and make wine. That's amazing. Yeah, and they were Sicilians. They they, they and many of them uh, were descendants of people who came over who were stonemasons. Who may, if you've ever driven down Broad Street, have you seen what is what's the performing arts school now that the Ridgeway Library, which is where Ridgeway is buried. He and his wife, there, there's a, a sarcophagus in the basement there where he and his wife are buried. Kind of like the Napoleonic tomb, if you've ever seen that. It's the same same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, that that was a, a place in, uh, in, in, in where, where these people that I live with, they, their grandfathers had come to America to, because they were stonemasons and they were able to build that building. Can you wow. imagine the wealth that this man had that he was able to just do all of this? Wow, I, I can't even begin to imagine. <laughs> so I've, I've, hopefully I haven't rambled on. Hopefully no, there, no, there's a consistency to what, absolutely, what I'm telling Absolutely, absolutely. So, so the, now, what I, as a street performer or a street dancer, I guess I've been doing this for just about five years now. Okay. You know? And um, and it's something that I did because I needed, you know, one of the things as you age, uh, you, you need to challenge yourself physically, you mm. know, because uh, lack of movement and lack of motion leads to atrophy of so much of the body. Yeah. And so many issues that people blame on the age 
have more to do with their activity level and their diet and all of that. I'm, oh, by the way, I'm also an advocate for, for senior health. I serve Mercy Philadelphia Hospital on a board there called the Patient Family Advisory Council. This is, so this is the health component. I am a stickler for good diet and I realize the efficacy of good diet for good brain health. You, you know. must have read my mind because mm -hmm. I remember when we were on the bus you mm -hmm. mentioned your wellness and fitness practice. Right, right. And so I actually have it written down here to remind right, myself right. to ask yes, you. That, that is, that is, <laughs> so please tell us more. That is uh, the core of one of the core aspects of my life now and um, one, of, one of the components is, is diet. You know what? I've, I belong to AARP, and I belong to a group called Aging Disruptors. It's a there was a book by that title. The Aging Disruptors are people 70s, 80s, 90s, all over the United States, in various places, cities, tiny towns, hermits, all of, <laughs> all of that. But they all have in common this notion that there are practices and things you can do to stave off what others would regard as the the um, the destructive things of aging. Mm. I could have said that a little better, but uh, so so um, this is so you get to hear all of these various people. They're all they do all sorts of things, things that would not be commonly associated with people who are uh, septuagenarians or, or octogenarians or nonarians or even centenarians. You know, so. This is, this is, these are the practices. And uh, diet is the one thing. Another is mindset. I'm a, I'm a practitioner of mindfulness, which is kind of in the same sphere as yoga and all that thing. It's just being aware of yourself in the moment and learning that, that the past is something that you can't change. It's mm. immutable, but you can learn from it if you choose to Definitely. in the moment. And the future is something, why even bother worrying about it? Because you have no control over it. But what you do have control over is the moment. And the moment can expand as you, as you focus on it. Absolutely. So th this, this is one of the other things that contributes to, to good mental health and physical health. It definitely has an effect on you. It teaches you how to not allow yourself to move into patterns which can bring on depression. Mm -hmm. And I knew all about depression, having gone through that, those dark moments that I uh, spoke of. So this is something I do on a daily basis, you know. The, the mindfulness is something that, that you, you just kind of reset your whole way of thinking and responding to your environment and people around you. And part of that is the way you treat people and the way you treat yourself, being non-judgmental. Not yes. not yes. being harder. I've heard people say, oh, I can't stand myself. Oh, I hate myself. You know, that's not something that you want to say ever because that registers with you if you think that or I'm stupid. I'm dumb. Look at me. No, 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 no. Learn. We're all part of being human is being flawed. Absolutely. I, I think the fundamental thing that makes us human is is our our our, our flaws, and but we also have the opportunity for growth. Yes. And yes, and that is absolutely. the thing that inspires me. And I still look forward to growing and being a better human being, me being too, a better person. Too. The way I part of it is the way I treat people, the way I interact with people. I I all I always want to be respectful and treat people well, but there are always going to be challenging moments that and and I will say. 
could I have handled that better? What could I, what, what could I have done better in that moment? Mm. I, I like, I, I feel I'm a deep believer in karma. Me too. And I believe <laughs> that that uh, when you sow good seeds and you 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 spread this this vibration of of goodness, that it comes back on you. That and and I look, I walk, I live in the valley of the shadow of death, <laughs> to quote somebody. I live in, in Southwest Philadelphia, an area which is intense with violence and all of these things. Yet I choose to live there because I choose that I, I feel. Young people need to see me. They, I'm well known in Philadelphia. You know, I walk down the streets of, oh, that's the dancing grandpa. I see you just on my way here just now on Broad Street. I mean, this that's young, how I met you on the bus. Yeah, this young, this young man came, was hollering at me on Broad Street. Yo, yo, Pop, come back here. I want to battle you. I want to battle you. I, this, as I'm walking here, I was walking at, uh, at a pretty good clip because oh, I was so coming funny. from uh, Dilworth. Uh, what is that, Dilworth? park over there yeah. and I, I wanted to be here on time so I was really moving this guy he's hollering come back here come back here. I get it all the time well, wherever I go in Philadelphia so I'm recognized because Absolutely. of because of that and it's it's uh, I, I told some people it's, it's fame without fortune <laughs> but I'm very fortunate to have that fame Absolutely. because it gives Absolutely. me that that platform and I feel that I always feel that I could be doing more than I am mm. in my advocacy of, of good health. And I'm all, so that's why I jumped on this opportunity to, for people <laughs> to hear the things that I, that I have. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in a, a walking experiment about all this stuff that works. And people say, how are you able to jump at 73? I don't, I may not have any meniscus left in my knees. It may have long since evaporated wherever meniscus goes. <laughs> But the fact is that I, I can leap and jump. And what, I, what I've learned is that you can overcome those things by strengthening all the ligaments and all this stuff in the knees. I am a fervent believer in stretching every day. You know, some, I wake up in the morning and I, you know, my the arthritis here. But once I go through the, the series of exercises that I do and, and stretching and all of, all of those things, the pain goes away. I don't need to take Percocets or any of these other painkillers that I have friends that are suffering. Uh, they'll see me as, oh, I wish my knees could do that. And I'll say, to them, they probably can. You just have to rehabilitate them. Mm -hmm. I feel that part of the aging process is staying in a constant mindset of rehabilitation. People have injuries. They go into these rehabilitation hospitals and they, they do the things that the physical therapist invite them to do and they get better and then they go home and they forget about it that's it <laughs> i was just having that conversation with someone else mm -hmm. like we do often forget after physical therapy to keep doing those things well yeah. this is what i do on a, on a day to me the dancing is as much a part of of that maintenance and absolutely one thing about the body and the brain kind of that you know you take care of this and it takes care of that they pretty much have figured out that that uh if you're active and moving your, your memory and all of those things. Now, there was another major part of my life that I haven't touched on, and I'm going to, I absolutely must touch on that, and that is the game of Scrabble. <laughs> One of the things that saved like me, Scrabble. saved me after I, after I had the debilitation and not being able to do the mu music anymore, was I fell in love with the game of Scrabble. Now I, I, am, I am a pedagogue with Scrabble with ASAP. You may have heard of activities 
uh, after-school activities participants. That's a, a that's a nonprofit organization that teaches chess. It teaches debate. It teaches Scrabble, and it also has drum. Those are oh, the four areas. Ball. As a matter yeah. of fact, we are currently one of the four finalists of of of, um, of such of such groups that are going that could win a fifty thousand dollar grant from Wawa, the Wawa Corporation. Or or one thousand. We don't know. That will be announced on July the fourth when I get to sit up or down at Independence Hall on, well, on the on the podium it. with all of that. But but the impact that we have, we we have a girls chess summer girls chess camp. We find the girls are much better at chess than the boys once they're introduced to it, you know. And we've got we we've got kids that are playing chess. We we have funding to send them to tournaments in various ways. With Scrabble, we just at the American Museum of Jewish History, we had our Scrabble finals there. We also had the National North American Scrabble Championship in Philadelphia the last two years. One was down at the we had it at the airport Hilton, uh, airport Marriott, excuse me, this year. And the year before, the the Philadelphia Eagles were nice enough to give us their facility down at uh, uh, Lincoln Financial Field, where we had teams from all over the United States and Canada coming to compete in, in Scrabble. And uh, what made it so interesting is that that was the year of the Super Bowl. Now, here's a, here's a story, and this is not apocryphal. This is documented on Facebook I'm going to share. <laughs> the year before that, the Scrabble uh, Championship was held in Foxborough, which is a suburb of Boston. But that's where... The uh, NFL team that, that plays there, the, the uh, New England Patriots, play at, uh, in Foxborough. We went there, and we got to, they had their trophies and all this stuff, and, you know, they just expect to win every year. Well, here's something we did. We had all of our kids come together, and I led them in an E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles cheer. Right in the in the belly of the whale, so to speak. We were right in their thing, and I tell people that was the start of the run to the Super Bowl. We we got that Amazing. we got that that Amazing. mojo going. And you heard it here, folks. At and that Radio. is on it's on Facebook. You go to ASAP. You go to any of those things, and you'll see that we had a we had a. I think we took about. Less than maybe a hundred kids from Philadelphia to go compete in that, and our we did so well with that that they said, well, you know, next year we're coming to Philly, and they've come mm -hmm. again. So, so that's another big part. For one of the things I did was to get. I used to organize adult Scrabble tournaments. This is when um, Hasbro International was putting a lot of money behind the game and, and adults. So I would travel all over the United States and Canada to the cities where Scrabble would play. And I was the organizer of one of the people who would organize the, these uh, tournament events and direct, direct them. So I got to travel to you know pretty much all the major cities in, in the United States and in Canada doing this. But the thing I disliked most about that was the Poor sportsmanship of the competitors. You know, they there were people who would cheat. There were people wow. who were nasty. Yeah. So I said, if I ever get to teach this game to kids, the first thing I'm going to teach them is sportsmanship. Absolutely. And that is the thing I'm most proud of about the way that we instruct our young people in Philly in, in the game of Scrabble. So that that kind of has covered the three major aspects of, of, of my life. Absolutely. And and I'm so grateful and I'm so appreciative 
of you coming to share all these amazing things about yourself, about your art practice, about your wellness and fitness practice, about your community practice. Like I'm, I'm really, really grateful that you came to talk with us today. Well, I'm having a ball. This is, what do I love doing more than than, uh, than flapping the trap? Especially with, with, with gracious people. You know, it's a and, wonderful And thing. you've been super gracious yourself. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Big thank you to CultureWorks for allowing us to use their space to record this podcast. And you'll be able to find this not only on the Art Blog website, but also on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So if you use those services, look out for this podcast episode. Thank you again to Mr. Hopkins, the hip-hop grand pop. <laughs> my Super pleasure. excited to have you this today. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you. And for all of y'all out there listening to our blog radio, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye, y'all.